You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Monday, June 22nd, 2015, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hi, everyone. Hi. <laughs> We're recording a bit early. <laughs> this time of year, we got uh, lots of stuff going on, including we're getting ready for the amazing meeting coming up in just a few weeks. We're all getting Can't excited wait. about that. Uh, so, yeah, so our recording schedule is going to be a little bit off. But we have a great show for you this week. We're going to be reviewing the movie Jurassic World. Oh. Okay. And don't get too but, psyched. <laughs> but, but, but first. But first. Bob, Forgotten Superhero of Science this week. This week's Forgotten Superheroes of Science, I'm covering Vera Rubin, who was instrumental in conclusively showing that not only was galactic rotation anomalous, it was also the first solid evidence for the decades-old dark matter hypothesis. Ever hear of her? No. Sure. Cosmos. (laughs) Some of you certainly have. Rubin was born (laughs) in 1928. She loved astronomy since she was 10 years old. And her dad, even though he was convinced that uh, there wasn't much of a future for her in that field, he still supported her, and uh, he built her, he helped build her first telescope and other activities. Uh, later on, when she applied to Princeton for an, ast- an astronomy graduate degree, they said no because they do not accept women in they or they did not accept women in the astronomy program, and That's right. they they did not until 1975. They didn't accept any women. And wow, Princeton, really? Jeez. 1975? So, well, she went to, she went to <laughs> Cornell, nice damn place, and where she worked under none other than Richard Feynman, among others. Mm. Some of the high point, the high point of her career, uh, she started working with Kent Ford, who was an astronomer, and he had developed an extremely accurate spectrometer. And they were able together to examine the stop, the stellar Doppler shift with amazing detail. And so much so that they were the very first to realize that stars in other galaxies rotate at the same velocity, whether they're close to the center of the galaxy or at the very outskirts. And if you think about it, that doesn't make much sense at all because the intense gra- uh, gravitational pull at the center of of, uh, of galaxies would cause orbits to be faster and faster, uh, compared, especially compared to the, the rarefied outer edges of the galaxy. For an example, look at planetary orbits. The Earth goes around the sun in one year. Pluto takes 248. So why wouldn't, you know, why wouldn't galaxies be, uh, be, you know, the same? So that was a, that was a surprise, but still she thought, well, maybe that's just a quirk. You know, let's look at some other galaxies. So eventually they started looking at some other galaxies and everyone was the same. So that was clearly a, a huge finding. So Ruben at that time remembered reading about a theory by Fritz Zwicky, who in 1933 imagined the universe uh, had a missing mass or, or dark matter, as he called it, because fast-moving galaxies were not being thrown out of their clusters, which they should have, given given the gravitational uh, field that you could that he could divine from just the uh, the light. So his theory was ignored. It would you know not much attention was given to it. And uh, Ruben realized that she now had evidence uh, for for this theory, which could not be ignored. Her evidence and her results were very straightforward. There really wasn't too many weren't too many ways to interpret them, and that started getting uh, people's attention. Uh, she summed it up very nicely when she said back then, "What you see in a spiral galaxy is not what you get," and that's clearly the case. And really, the rest, as they say, is history. There's not much more to be said about dark matter. We all we all know about it. We've all discussed it many, many times. It's been all over news 
ever since then, pretty much, and the evidence for its existence just keeps getting stronger, and uh, all that in no small part because of Rubin. So, remember Vera Rubin? Mention her to your friends, perhaps when discussing extrapolating rotation curves using bolometric luminosity. Neil deGrasse Tyson did a good job of covering her story in Cosmos, mm. if you recall. Yes. All right. Well, we're going to do a movie review, uh, Jurassic World. There will be spoilers galore. So if you <laughs> haven't seen the movie yet and you want to watch the movie before you listen to our brilliant deconstruction of this film, then uh, you want to fast forward to the end of this section, which is at 25 minutes and 15 seconds. So, what'd you guys think of this movie? Sequel to Jurassic Park. This is actually the fourth movie, right? In there, there was is three. The yes, yeah. yeah. Jurassic, yeah, Jurassic Park, and then there's two sequels to that, and now we're like 20 years in the future, and Jurassic Park has graduated to Jurassic World. Kind of like Disney World, I guess, to Disneyland. Yeah, sure. Right. I had a blast. I had a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. This is one of those movies that I think you uh, should really see on the big screen. It was, I think it was better than uh, the first sequel, which I saw. The second sequel I did not even see, but from what I've read, I think this is clearly superior. I think their idea was a good one in terms of bringing it back to the original amazing movie. Uh, but, but just the entire setup, uh, really makes you think of that first movie and you don't even think a moment about this, the other sequels that were not very good. So, I mean, I enjoyed it. It was a fun ride. I know there's lots of science issues that, that we should discuss, but just from just a pure escapist fun, um, I, I enjoyed it. I didn't like it. <laughs> like Steve said, so we have Jurassic World, right? So this is more of a fully fledged theme park where people can interact with the different kinds of dinosaurs. And from the outside, it looked like a really fun time if you could imagine ever going to something like this. But right from the get-go, Bob, there are no geckos. I didn't, in this I didn't see any geckos. Yeah. <laughs> but right from, right, right from the beginning, everything about this movie seemed wrong to me. Like, you know, they, they, really? they yeah, the quick premise was they made a, a an incredibly large, extraordinarily large, like forty foot tall dinosaur that was ended up being you know part Velociraptor and part a ton of other modern animals and other dinosaurs and everything to make the the, the most monstrous monstrous thing that they could to further bring people to the park. And I didn't I didn't even like that idea. I know that they were saying that. One of the science points that people didn't like was the dinosaurs didn't have feathers and, you know, what the hell. And, you know, in this case, they were saying that this thing was so genetically engineered, it's not really even a, a legitimate dinosaur anymore because it was so hobbled together from so many other creatures. But as an example, one of the big um, things I think they, they screwed up royally from a science pers perspective was when the protagonist – or one of the good guys, I think it was the owner of the company that bought Jurassic World from the previous owner, that guy with the white beard. Hammond. Mustache, yeah. yeah, from Hammond, right? He was like, well, how, why did you create this? You know, how could you do such a thing? And we give it all of these different abilities. Cause the thing could, had, the thing had, um, built in camouflage. It had, um, you could see infrared. Yeah. You know, they made mm -hmm. it so terrifying, <laughs> but the way that they explained it from the science perspective is that, they used all these different animals so they could make the animals. So the, the lead scientist, the research uh, bioengineer scientist was saying, hey, you know, when we gave it the genes from the animal that could camouflage itself, other things came with that. You can't just pluck out that one thing and insert it into this thing. You know, and 
Well, it's the other way around. They, they gave they gave they wanted to give one attribute, and and then camouflage came along with it. The cut was right. it the uh, right, right, yeah, right. The cuttle, but, but it needed the cuttlefish, cuttlefish yeah. uh, DNA. I don't believe that those statements were even remotely accurate. I don't think that that science was correct. I, I think that yeah. you know it was just an excuse, a horribly concocted excuse of why this thing had to be so fatally dangerous. You know, like this thing wasn't just a little bit more dangerous than the other dinosaurs. It was a killing, eating intelligence machine that could hide from you and you can't hide from it, you know? Yeah, and it could drop its body temperature to avoid thermal sensors and these sorts of abilities. Really out there stuff. Yeah, cl- yeah clearly there were lots of science issues. For, for me, the, the biggest problem was that one of the big things about Jurassic Park was that it was a lot of it was you know pretty much cutting edge dinosaur knowledge at that time in in the early nineties, but now in twenty fifteen they they didn't really advance a lot of that knowledge the way they should have and the the worst examples are, are plumage color patterns Th- those are the two biggest ones we've learned so much about that you know throw a bone to to that why yeah you, they can have a reason why genetically oh it was whatever a hodgepodge of all these genes and they they designed it that way but they still could you know it wouldn't have cost them anything to throw some feathers here and there even on one dinosaur and that's especially egregious to me because this movie influenced so many paleontologists. If you were like a 10 to 20 year old or whatever, 8 to 18 year old in, in the early 90s, you it had such an influence on you. If you asked a lot of paleontologists today who are of the right age, they will clearly say that this was a huge thing. So yeah, it's a story. It's just for fun and that's fine. But uh, you know, it's not Land of the Lost. It's not Godzilla. It, it, this does have a huge impact, and, and it will still have an impact just because it's dinosaurs. It will. But I mean, I don't know. I, I don't I, think this movie is going to have a big impact. I think this like, movie is totally like forgettable. One, not like the first one. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Jurassic yeah. Jurassic Park, the original movie, had a very big impact. First of all, it was a better film. It was just a better mm. movie. The characters story. were yes. much better. The story was much better. Oh gosh, I yes. still didn't like. The fact that they uh, resorted to the old, you know, we shouldn't mess with nature plot line. They took a much more intellectually interesting story from the book and boiled it down to the Hollywood tired cliche of they were (laughs) meant to go extinct. Meant by what? By who? It's ridiculous. The, yeah, that, the what, universe. That, yeah, the universe. That asteroid was meant to whack into the earth and, you know, wipe out the dinosaurs. So that was just silliness. But, you know, they, they at least were talking about, like, chaos theory and how hard it is to to control this. And obviously, in, in all these movies, you have a contrived plot line to create a situation where dinosaurs are eating people, right? That's the movie. It's a monster right. movie. But yeah, Godzilla. It felt like Godzilla to me. But it's a science-based monster movie, right? So the, it is important for the science not to make your eyes roll. It doesn't have right. to be the best science ever, but it should be non-eye-rolling science. So you know, that's in, a good point, Steve, right? They created the monster. They used modern science to create yeah. the monster. So could you please just get the science to the point where every person who is into science isn't going to go, why? <laughs> you know, just yeah. alleviate yeah. my pain. Take the next 15 minutes of research step, please, and just ask right. somebody who knows. All right. So we, you know, we have to say, you know, that DNA does not survive 65 million years, right? So oh, as yeah, far as we could tell. That's, that's the big gimme. That's the, the whole premise of the movie is flawed, but that's the gimme, right? Because, you, you know, you need, we say, okay, because there's no movie if we don't give them that. So you just got to acknowledge that and give them Not without that. time travel, right? You know, I still don't know why they're mixing these dino DNA with frog DNA, though. Why not birds? Why, <laughs> yeah, why do they where never, are the birds? Why don't they fill in the gaps with the 
with the living dinosaurs, you know, with birds. Yeah, I don't, total fail. I, I don't, don't think they know, Steve. I don't think they actually How know. could they not know they hired scientists to, get, to act they as advisors to for this? All right, so let's talk about that. They hired scientists to help them with the accuracy. So it brings up several questions. One, who are the scientists, which I'd like to find out. Number two, did the scientists actually pull this movie out of utter ridiculousness and take it to the level that it was at with them struggling? Or did the scientists actually do a bad job? Yeah, I suppose that know. they just didn't listen to the I mean, it just didn't have as much of an influence on the script, you know, as we would have liked. But yet there are some things that they did listen to, like for example, the, the mosasaur, which I love by the way. They recently found out that that uh that the mosasaur had these with these weird kind of like interior teeth inside of its mouth and they got that right. That was a subtle thing. They did need to get that right. Really not many people would have noticed at all. But still, yeah, they got yeah. that little thing right, but then other things they just don't seem to care about. And then the other funny thing, when that mosasaur ate the shark, that was an endangered shark. It's like, oh, come on. He gotta have, he's gotta eat endangered shark. That's what he likes. One of the advisors on the movie was, was Jack Horner, who was a paleontologist. Right. Yeah. Uh, he, he recently wrote an article in which he said, Oh, good. Yeah. We'll, we'll have dinosaurs in five to 10 years. By reverse engineering them from birds. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Which we talked about on, on the show okay. before, the chickenosaurus, remember? Yeah. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, you say, okay, oh, look, this is what happened when the dinosaur tail went to a bird tail or when, you know, the dinosaur jaw went to a bird beak or whatever. So they just reverse as many as the things that, of the genetic changes that we can reverse. Right. Obviously, you're going to be missing some information or you're going to be missing some of the, the dinosaur information. You're, and you're only going to be able to really make theropod-like dinosaurs. Not mm-hmm. You're not going to be able to get to a triceratops from a chicken. But I got, my biggest beef with the movie was, was the no feathers on the velociraptor. Yeah. I mean, really? Come on. The velociraptor, that's the big thing that's been discovered about dinosaurs in the last 20 years, is how many more of them, especially the theropods, it's including specifically velociraptors, that they had feathers why? And they would look so much more badass if you – right? They wouldn't look like giant lizards. Just – that could have been a big wow moment in the movie. Yes. You know? That's and exactly they blew my point. It. They blew it. They mm-hmm. had such – the thing is in movies like this, the science is a character. And in this in, – in the Jurassic uh, Park movies, it's overtly an element of the movies – you know, mm-hmm. they, they, like in the, especially in the Jurassic Park where they invite scientists to evaluate what's going on and they have the little science lesson about how they did it and everything. It is definitely a big part of the plot of the movie. And, and it's things like that that turn a wow moment into an eye rolling moment and that, that absolutely right. affects your enjoyment of these movies. And yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and the thing is though, it's, I understand you mess with the science, you know, for your plot. You want, you want to get from A to B and science sometimes is the casualty. I totally get that. But in a lot of cases, especially for this movie, it didn't have to be. So what? Throw some yeah, feathers. Didn't have to or, be. or how about colors? You know, they're not, they're not just this monotone color. I mean, no one really thinks that anymore for a lot of these dinosaurs. They, they could have had some interesting camouflage, just yeah. color camouflage, not the cuttlefish camouflage and, you know, different right. patterns. I mean, throw, throw something. It wouldn't have cost you anything except maybe a few extra computer cycles. I, Come yeah, on. Yeah, I think I got my whole I agree with Jay more than you on this movie, Bob. But yeah, I enjoyed it. It was entertaining. Right. Yeah, you know, they had to there was that's the all that's in what there. I'm saying. 
But it, it wasn't a very good movie. Uh, the the characters were one dimensional. Didn't oh, really care about any of them. Yeah, the plot was yeah. so kind of kind of predictable. I mean, okay, I get it. You have to contrive a situation in which the security measures in the park fail. Otherwise, you're not going to have dinosaurs eating people. I get it. But you know, the it, dinosaur it was, played the old switcheroo I mean, on him. Yeah, I know, but it wasn't that. It wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't even that. I like, kind of oh, like that. The, is like the door that. open? No, they, someone checked the door. Ah, it's out. They opened. <laughs> that, that was about. Yeah, it. they opened the big dinosaur-sized <laughs> door. To, and didn't close it to get to get out of the cage. You mean there were no human sized doors that they could get them Come in on. and out of that cage? They had to open the big doors so that the dinosaur could escape. Okay, yeah. whatever. Yeah, that's a or, little you thing. Know what? You know what? Cut your loss. You're going to lose two people as opposed to opening the stupid door and losing twenty thousand. people. And then they did it so many cliches, like you know the the guard that was sitting there that was what like that was assigned to the gate. Of <laughs> eating, course, eating potato. Yeah, chips. he's like this <laughs> overweight, sloppy kind of dorky looking guy. Like you know you get. The sense. Oh yeah, this is this is a guy that sleeps on the job. Like, Red really? shirt number one. Yeah, like oh, the, the oh, yeah. That doesn't make the stakes that high for me. Make it a guy that's you know a guy or girl that's super sharp, that's totally on it. You know that you know that it's trying really hard. That's when you care, and this is why we don't care about the characters in this freaking movie because the stakes are so ridiculously high that they're they don't matter anymore. You just you know I didn't expect anything other than complete lunacy from this movie about fifteen minutes into it. There's few characters I, I didn't want to necessarily want to see eaten. Uh, you know, if it, it depends, anyone could have been killed by a dinosaur in this movie and my heart was not in it or felt any kind of loss for them. That's how one dimensional and detached I felt about these characters. So there was something else that this movie did very blatantly that really bothered me and it was the product placement. Yeah, some obvious product placement. Oh, yeah, there was that, wasn't there? Yeah, you know, the, like they pull up in a car and you're like, just by the way they shot it, you're like, this is a freaking car commercial. Then at one point, what's his face? He's, drink, he's drinking a Coke. You know, he's drinking, when I'm running from dinosaurs, I drive Chrysler. And, uh, you know, he's drinking this Coke and he's like swigging it and you're hearing like the bottle swig noise and he's like, ah. and the only thing he didn't do was go, this Coke is awesome. You know, like, please, could you, could you turn that down a little bit? <laughs> Someone's got to pay for this, Jay. One more major thing, guys. They they pull the oldest freaking card out of the movie making thing, which is the military is evil and only has bad, ridiculously dumb intentions. And the guy that represents the military is an asshole. Yeah. Please don't ever <laughs> play that card in the movie again. Just try something different. I love D'Onofrio, though, but uh, but yeah, really. I mean, you're going to use Velociraptors on on the battlefield with with people. Have you seen the first three movies? Are you really going to consider doing that? That was ridiculous. Although, despite what I just said, I did like the scene when they were racing to find uh, Indominus Rex with, on the motorcycles with the uh, the Velociraptors keeping pace with them. That was kind of an interesting, a fun scene to think sure. that they would be it your allies. Fun. Yeah, it was fun, yeah, but it was hunt, bittersweet. Hunting together, yeah. The whole thing was bittersweet because you, the whole premise with them yeah. being like these controllable creatures. No, sorry, you're not going to. You know, train a freaking velociraptor. I just don't see that happening ever. No, it's, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, now, and another quick thing. Um, the, the Deering character. Uh, I mean, I wasn't very happy with her. It wasn't. She wasn't as bad as I had anticipated from the previews. But, but watching her, the more I watched her, the more I longed to to, to have a character like Laura Dern's Doctor Ellie Sattler. She's just just a much more satisfying character than than she turned out to be. So, oh well. I didn't like the character at all. I found yeah. her to be like yeah. zero dimension, just not interesting. I didn't didn't like I didn't like anything about her in the beginning. And then they pull that whole card where like, you know, 
the right way to live your life is to, you know, to have kids, right? You were, Bob, yeah. you and I were talking about that. Yeah. I don't know. It's just, uh, that's not Yeah, she was mu- the typical cold corporate, you know, person who then learns to like children and want a family. And, you know, which is, <laughs> it, itself is cliched, but because it was a woman, then it adds a sexist yeah. angle to it as well, which, which a lot of people didn't like and are commenting on. But they sort of did that at the first one too, where you know the, the the male paleontologist also didn't like kids, and his girlfriend was trying to talk him into liking kids. But that was kind of sweet. Where this was just dumb. You know, this yeah. was just when was this movie made in the sixties? I mean, you know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I really do like Chris Pratt, though. I mean, he's funny. He's got a ton of yeah. charisma. You know, I was kind of wanting him to be at the level of Guardians of the Galaxy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I wanted him to be more like that character who was a lot funnier and a lot more, you know, just, just there was just more yeah. to that character. And I cared about that character. And this guy, I was like, well, yeah, all right, I get it. I'm supposed to be, you know, stories kind of being told from his perspective, but I just wasn't feeling it. Right, Jay. Which character did you care about? I, I didn't care. I was hoping those two kids were going to be eaten, quite frankly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, and here's another thing, like, you know, just do a quick comparison to one of the best monster movies of all time which was jaws if you think oh my god right right jaws was all about epic storytelling and acting right the acting was incredible the the script was just fantastic and think about how little you actually have to see the monster in a monster movie for the monster movie to be effective horrifying you know thrilling you know today when they make a lot of you know, these Hollywood movies today are just all about the monster and not about the actors, which is what makes you really love the movie. You know, you really love the movie for all of those other things other than the special effects part. That's the icing on top of the icing on the cake, in my opinion. <laughs> but they flip it around. You know, it's like, yeah, you can. how many more dinosaurs can you throw in here? Oh, one other thing that really bothered me. People are not mm, going to yeah. be kayaking down a river filled with 50-ton dinosaurs. yeah. That's not going to happen. You wouldn't do that with hippos. You know, hippos are dangerous. Or, now imagine and multiply that by, by 20. Yeah, true. Right. True. Or put your kid in the riding pen on the backs of little dinosaurs. That was adorable, though, right? That was pretty It was. Cute. It had a cute moment. I'll give yeah. you that. It was cute, but impl- I'd, I'd say the other, the other premise of the movie, which is that 20 years on, people are already getting bored with dinosaurs. That's bullshit. Yeah, like they oh, they, oh, they need to make a bigger, scarier dinosaur because people are getting it's it's passe now. It's like it's old like an elephant, right? Like to, an elephant. Are you kidding me? If they if they were, if they had a if they had a, a zoo, if a zoo had one dinosaur, let's say it had pick the most boring dinosaur you could imagine, and that single dinosaur is the only dinosaur they have on the zoo, people would be going there forever. From you know, from around the entire world to see a living one crappy oh, living dinosaur, that would be the most famous zoo in the world. Yeah, I'd go see a woolly mammoth, and that's probably the, yeah. the creature to, yeah. to which we're might be closest and actually someday seeing in our life. Yeah, I agree, Steve. That was a really ridiculous contrivance. Contrivance, yeah. yeah. yeah like no shit. Like they had so many epic dinosaurs there, like ridiculously epic dinosaurs at that yeah. park. Steve's right. If they had one of those little squirrely guys with the long neck, the whole world would be going there three times in their lifetime to see it. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and they, think think about all they had to do. And I know they wouldn't have a movie if they did the smart thing is just just <laughs> use the herbivores. We don't need the crazy killer. <laughs> 
carnivores. <laughs> you don't need them. You know, just just have the herbivores themselves, which are apparently very benign in the movie, would be just fine. I mean, okay, you know, the T-Rex is a T-Rex and it's iconic. I get that. But eat, but whatever. People would still go in the same numbers, even without the killer saurus. Yeah. It, you know, that, that whole premise was ridiculous. Was ridiculous. Yeah. And then at the end, like, you know, three quarters through the movie when they're fighting the bad dinosaur and they're like, they put raptor in there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they crazy. It's like, yeah. oh gosh. No That's, shit. Yeah, that no scene, shit. that scene sucked. When the, when the raptors and the, and the impossosaurus started talking to yeah. each other and realizing, oh, wait, we're on the same team. Yeah, there's the dinosaur language, Evan. Like, there's oh. actual dinosaur language. Uh, that, yeah. that was, you know, that was an eye roll moment for me. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. So scale, scale of one so, to 10, guys. 10 being, you know, jaws and one being, uh, <laughs> basket case. No, <laughs> Prometheus. <laughs> Prometheus. And one being Prometheus. Prometheus one. <laughs> I'll, I'll give this a generous three. I'll, I'll give it. I'll give it a four because I actually didn't want to gouge my eyes out while I was watching it. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll give it a four as I well. I wasn't quite there. Because it, I was able to watch the end of the movie. So I gave it a four. So you made it through. Bob, That's a four. Yeah, you guys have definitely uh, – when Jay made the comparison to Jaws, that really drove it home a little bit. Um, in terms uh-huh. of what, what it could have been, but I'd give it like a, a five and a half. Sure. I mean, just for pure spectacle and summer, summer blockbuster fun. It, it's fun on a big screen. All right. Let's move on to some news items. Evan, I understand that athletes are into a new superfood. Uh, we're talking about people who, well, adults specifically who drink human breast milk for all the wonderful benefits of human breast milk. Yep. But, the news is that health experts in Britain last week, they raised flags of caution against the perceived benefits of adults drinking human breast milk. Now, among the list of perceived benefits of HBM, as I'm calling it, are uh, the following. And I just did a quick search, and I'm sure there's a lot more claims. Uh, for one, it will boost the immune system. It will help you fix your erectile dysfunction. It will help you control your diarrhea. Use it as a workout recovery or energy drink. Use it as a cure for psoriasis or relief from arthritis. Perhaps it's a treatment for diabetes or it will, it will relieve your nausea from chemotherapy if you're suffering with cancer. Oh, and how about actually fighting cancer itself? And I'm sure there's more, but I stopped after that because I think that's a, it kind of get the point as to what we're talking about here. A cure all for everything, a panacea. But the research that was published in the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine states there was little evidence to support the claims that milk is some sort of superfood that will boost health and fitness and ward off disease. Uh, they actually go further than that. Uh, they warn people that if you consume raw and unpasteurized human breast milk, you can be exposed to many serious infectious diseases, including hepatitis, HIV, and syphilis. That, well, that's if the, the mother has those, I guess. Then, yeah, right? that's right. Okay. Correct. But, but here's the problem. There is an online market for this stuff, which is totally unregulated. Well, that's not, not cool. So you got these places called milk sharing sites in which people who like to, uh, trade stories and testimonials and anecdotes about the benefits of breast milk and also actually purchase breast milk from one another. They call it milk, milk plus. Sharing. Milk. <laughs> yeah. Don't ask what the a pl- clockwork orange. A clockwork Is that where orange. you go get it? Milk, you get it from the uh, milk plus. 
How about this? The New York Times reported recently, uh, last year that 64% of the samples from milk sharing sites were contaminated with staph, 36% oh with strep and three quarters with other bacterial species. Yeah. 74% of the samples would have failed a milk bank criteria. Totally unregulated and, you know, Buyer beware out there, baby. <laughs> you're going to – who knows what the hell you're really getting. So we need to regulate the breast milk industry. Uh, yeah, that's that's right. what we need. Now, we need to warn people like <laughs> these good scientists are doing that this is not uh, something that adults really should be uh, should be consuming. I mean uh, – yeah, okay, so here's what they're saying. Here's what the proponent's saying. It's, it has lots of proteins and fats and carbohydrates. It's, it, it's sort of this – it's natural, of course – and it's it's sort of this perfect formula uh, in which you get a lot of nutrients. Well, yeah, for infants, maybe. <laughs> you the know, whole obviously idea is dumb. For infants, it's just, not for adults. It's the superfood phenomenon. It's dumb. The whole idea is nonsense. You know what I mean? There's no such thing as a superfood. Yeah, it's got protein, carbohydrates, and fats, just like all other food does. <laughs> exactly. You know, it, it's ridiculous the notion that there's some magical combination that what, what's going to happen when you get into this magical combination of macronutrients? Nothing. Nothing's going to happen. It's just, it's no different than eating food, just eating a well-balanced diet. All right, Jay, changing gears a little bit here. Uh, we have yet another quote unquote flying car claim cool this is interesting fellas so i i was thinking about this this news item kind of tickled me in a particular way so that's why i wanted uh -huh. to talk about it uh, it occurred to me that there are things about flying cars that have always kind of bothered me poking around in the back of my head so one of the things is that the flying car it, it has to be both a car and an airplane and every time i've ever seen someone try to make one or even seen you know drawings or or some type of mock up of one it's kind of like a shitty airplane and a shitty car. Yeah. The takeoff and landing aspect of it always kind of bothered me too because you always have to go to some type of field or, or airport. You know, you're not going to be taking your car off conveniently on your road. You know, you're not going to be doing like a back to the future type deal where, you know, you just drive down the road and you're uh, up you go. You know, then I always question, do you have to be a pilot? Yeah. To be, to fly a flying car? You know, you, we, now with modern technology, I suppose. Yeah, that today they, they're going to require pilot licenses when when these things ever get in the air. You'll have to ha have a certain amount of hours flying. Yeah, but I, you know, as the years tick by, you know, we're not back in the the '60s when people thought we were actually going to have flying cars. Um, you know, today with computer assist, you know, like maybe a Google flying car type of deal. Sure, okay, that I could see that, and that would be great. You just press the button, and it it takes you off and it flies you there. So this German company called Evolo is developing an 18-rotor copter that can take off and land vertically, which is a great solution. It can hover and it can fly on its own, right? So it pretty much covers some of these issues that have always kind of been bothering me about the flying car. They call it the Volocopter, and so far it seems to be a pretty cool project. You know, I, I you know, no way am I saying that this thing is coming out next year. You know, they're working on it, but they have a, a fantastic prototype and they're they're definitely upping the ante on their technology. It does fill the same niche as a flying car, even though I know this is not a flying car because it kind of looks like a small helicopter cockpit with a big circular array of 
rotors that go around a circle, right around around the cockpit. Not too dissimilar to a quadcopter that you, you know, I'm sure that you've seen online. People flying those small quadcopter type of deals. It's just a really big version of that that can hold people. So they flew their first remotely piloted prototype two years ago in 2013, and this was the full scale version. And they have the first manned flight coming within a few months, which I think is which is pretty pretty damn cool, guys. And unlike these other flying vehicles, this one seems, you know, I have to admit, it seems like there's a lot of promise to the direction that they're going in. So the 18 rotors are the exact thing that makes this thing kick ass, in my opinion. It has a ton of redundancy. Now, having 18 of these engines on this, you know, this airship is a brilliant idea because you could lose several of them and the thing can still fly. Just think about that. This makes, uh, you know, the rotor, the rotor idea makes flight incredibly stable as well. So you've seen the latest, you know, quadcopter technology and you see how mature that the software that runs these things, the things that keeps them stable and up in the air, it's pretty amazing. So the guys who developed the technology for this particular machine says it, it's very simple to fly. It doesn't need a runway and it's, it's fully battery powered. And I like to see new technology like this to start off with battery power. It's a great idea. It flies, um, just like the smaller versions. Now think about this. This is another thing I thought was really cool. So like, let's say if you want to fly forward with one of these, you know, 18 rotor copters or even, even the, the, the small ones work the same exact way. So what happens is the back, the back rotors increase their power a little bit, making the ass end of the ship come up. And then that actually puts it into the right orientation for it to get a forward pitch and it moves forward. It's very simple. And they don't need to have movable blades, which is a really awesome thing. And, and, you know, I think that that is one of the big maintenance factors of helicopters or traditional helicopters that the blades actually have to be constantly pitching and changing pitch in order to do different things. But because you have so many different flight surfaces on this thing, all they have to do is power them up and down in order for it to do amazing stunts and, and feats of stability. They're saying that the version that they're, they're, they're working on now is going to have a ballistic parachute and it can go 57 miles per hour or 92 kilometers per hour, which is pretty, you know, pretty good, pretty fast. I mean, I'm sure it's going to be crazy expensive. The, the prototype now they're saying is about 340,000 US, US dollars. That's a lot of money. No um, but of course, as they mass produce anything, you know, the price would come down dramatically. Bob, like really that, that's not that high of a price to buy what they're considering to be like their first, you know, legitimate prototype when they come out with it. When you think that mass production could turn that price into a fraction, it would be a joke uh, how affordable yeah. these things would be. Yeah. Economies of scale as usual. Yeah. We'll bring the price way down. So before they test fly it, with a real, with a living pilot, they're going to do a revamp of the entire flight control and battery system. Uh, the CEO Alexander Zose or Zosel is working with the German government to get to you know to get the uh, aviation rules for light sport multi multicopter vehicles revised. So they're doing this you know while they're developing the technology. So when they're ready, hopefully they'll have helped uh, change some of the rules and laws so they can actually people can actually use these aircraft. Now here's the bottom line. So like I said, 340,000 US dollars, 20 to 30 minute runtime with version two, hopefully getting above an hour. The version they have today can hold two people. Um, they're, they're going to build a version that can hold up to six people, which I think is pretty cool. The plan is to show the commercial version next summer at the EAA Air Venture in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. I just wish they wouldn't call it a damn flying car because it's clearly not a car in any 
No, it's a helicopter. Right. I mean, yeah, no. But they got to throw that damn car word in there just to get people's attention. I think a reasonable criteria is that it's personal transportation that you could take from your driveway to your destination, not from an airport to an airport. If you're going from airport to airport, it's not a car. It's a plane. Right. Right. Yeah. This this is, you know, a personal helicopter. That's what maybe it's getting us one notch closer, but whether or not this would be able to function as personal transportation, I don't know. You know, are you going to take this thing to work? <laughs> yeah, the cost would be like crazy parking. high, especially, you know, it's kind of big too for that. Yeah, you know, parking is an issue. That's a real Now, this isn't the first design that used multiple helicopter blades. Uh, you know, there's right. the Moeller uh flying cars which are probably the closest thing to what we would think of as a flying car that I've seen. You're actually sitting in the middle of a flying saucer-shaped thing, and then there's contained blades around you, you know, in a circle around you, like eight blades. And it's computer-controlled. It's very stable. The problem with these things, they fly. They work. The problem is that their range is awful. It's terrible. Plus, the Mahler isn't uh, Mm -hmm. circular. I think that was a very very early uh, prototype. It's it's more car-shaped now. They have different ones. They have different ones. But yeah. It's uh, also the cost too. You know, that's a gas powered vehicle and the costs are tremendously high. You need to have something that is ridiculously safe. That's me. Criteria number one is that yeah. you have to take the flying out of the hands of, of us and put, leave it into totally capable computer and software technology. I've just gotten so pessimistic about these because I just think the uh, whole idea of flying from one location to another is so wasteful. For a small personal scale, it's hard to imagine right. that it's ever going to be cost effective. Driving is effective. It's efficient. Rolling on wheels is just always going to be so much more efficient than lifting your weight and your fuel and everything in the air and traveling and taking it somewhere else. We just don't have any technology that's going to make that cost effective for personal, you know, commuting or whatever. Yeah. And think about this too. Like, okay. So I'd never use it. I have a, a very luckily, I have a very short commute. You know, so okay, I fly a car, I fly a a vehicle to work, and I get to work in five minutes. So what? Yeah, yeah, it's not it's not going to be for everybody. It's it's a niche market, niche market. Yeah, right. I mean, it would be nice for longer trips, the exact kind of trips where it's not possible because you know it doesn't have the range range. exactly. You know, then what do you got to do? You got to land it and swap out your battery packs, or you know, and then uh, yeah, forget it or refuel. Yeah, yeah. We just don't have the technology. The holy grail would be. You know, if you could go three hours in a straight line at 150 miles an hour, you know, then it's, you know, that would be awesome. And, you know, if it was just electricity where we got to the point where electricity was amazingly cheap because it's all, you know, renewable, you know, maybe. But we're not going to be in five years. It's this is going to be a toy for rich people. Just can't I just can't see a scenario where it replaces the family car, which is unfortunate because it'd be cool. Yeah, it would be. All right. (laughs) Hey, do you guys remember Kennewick Man? Hey, yeah. yes, I do. <laughs> Kinda. So this was the uh, fairly complete skeleton found in the West Coast on, in uh, the United States. Oregon, yeah. And, yeah, so the bones of an 8,500-year-old man called Kennewick Man. And this sparked a lot of controversy because anthropologists wanted to, you know, do some science to in- examine the bones, investigate them. But uh, the Native Americans in the area, the, the, the local tribes, said that according to the Amer- Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, oh, yeah. that they had the right to any 
remains of their ancestors, essentially, because they wanted to, to rebury them. One problem, though. The anthropologist said, however, well, you can't really prove that this skeleton belongs to any current modern tribe, so the act doesn't apply. Um, the Army Corps of Engineers, however, sided with uh, the tribes and decided to basically shut down any tests. Well, any uh, any excavation in the area, any attempt to find any further artifacts in the area, which I thought was ridiculous. Scientists were able to do some analysis. They were able to extract some DNA from the bones uh, because they were they basically sued and they kept it kept it in limbo long enough for them to do some science on it. And the results of the DNA analysis are now available. That's the update. Finally, so it, it turns out that Kennewick Man is most closely related to Native Americans. So it there was wow. some people who were thinking maybe it was a representative of a group of people who came over from Asia or whatever that was were from the East Coast or there was some evidence of some other human migration. But it turns out, nope, it's pretty much the ancestor of the local tribes that are living there today. At least, you know, as best as we could tell from the DNA analysis, that's its closest relative. Uh, so that obviously strengthens the claims of the the local tribes who are saying that they should therefore take possession of the bones. Right, but they wanted, but they weren't basing it on science. They just were staking the claim to it, not based on anything other than proximity. Right, right. But this does support, you know, that at least that this is an ancestor. You know, it is. Right. So I still have a problem with the way the act is being employed. I mean, I get the idea. I, I understand that, you know, local tra- tribes should have the right to their own artifacts. I think like local, same thing, like countries should have a right to their own cultural heritage. Uh, and scientists can't just assume that they can go anywhere in the world and take possession of any artifacts uh, in the name of science, you know, quote unquote. But my que- I have a couple of questions. One is how far back in time does that go? You know what I mean? So yeah. how much cultural continuity and how much history? So what if we found, what if just had, I don't, this may not even be possible, but let's say we found a 50,000-year-old person in North America. Yeah, good luck good luck claiming that as yeah, or your what own. if what if Homo erectus crossed some ancient uh, land, land bridge, bridge and there was yeah there was Homo erectus skeletons from 2 million years ago uh in North America would they claim so there's got to be a limit once you decide that there's a some limit then I think it's a very interesting conversation to have at some point you go back far enough in time and those remains become the ancestors of all of us you know equally that it's human history, and we all sort of have an intellectual right, in my opinion, to our own history. This is our collective human history. That you know, I do think that they they should be available for scientists to explore. But I don't, and I don't, I don't think you can draw a sharp line either. You know, I think that there's there's no sharp demarcation that you could draw. But you know, it's a it's a conversation worth happening. I think something like a thousand years or two thousand years probably reasonable, but that's totally arbitrary. You know, once you start to get beyond that, I don't know, it just becomes, I think, silly to to claim specific modern continuity. Mm. Steve, about Kennewick Man, though, why did it take 15 or more years to do the DNA testing or get the results? All the legal legal red tape that got tied up in. Anyway, so I do do hope that scientists and Native American communities work out an arrangement where – 
everyone wins. You know what I mean? Because with situations like this, you can respect, I think, the the culture of the Native Americans while still being allowed access to to artifacts and to the ability to do the science. Like I remember I was at a dig in Maryland and it was, this is much closer now. This was like a six or 700 year old American Indian village that they were excavating. And the local tribes were allowing them to do their science, to do the Mm -hmm. excavation, to map everything, to take their bone samples. And then when they were done, everything sort of got returned to as much as, as closely as possible to its native state. Nothing wrong with that. They, they reburied things, and it was sort of left largely undisturbed. And when you think about it, that's actually not a bad thing for for future, you know, archaeologists or whatever. That we're not, you know, pulling everything up out of the ground and and um, completely disturbing it. You could make an argument that it's not a not that bad an idea. I know, like sometimes scientists do that deliberately. I remember reading about there were in some of the bogs in in Europe there's lots of human remains mm-hmm. and you get you get these bog mummies these sort of natural bog mummies which are nicely really cool nicely preserved too yeah very nicely preserved because of the chemicals in the in in the environment and that they specifically decided like to leave certain sections undisturbed even though they knew there was stuff to find there they said ah we'll let future generations of scientists with whatever superior technology they will have Ah, we'll leave that undisturbed for them. We're going to just work over here and, and do our science over here. Ah, that, that's interesting I, approach to take, you know? Mm. So anyway, it seems like if everyone's willing to be reasonable, which I know is always a big if, <laughs> you know, we could work this out. We could do our science and you could, we could respect your, the remains of your ancestors and everybody's happy. <laughs> Let's not <laughs> argue over who exhumed who. <laughs> anyway. So, but I'm glad they did the DNA analysis because that was actually, you know, that was one critical piece of science we wanted done. Yeah, yeah, because thanks. imagine if it weren't, right? Imagine if that those that skeleton was not related to modern American Indian tribes. That would have been interesting. Little bit of little piece of information about humans sure. moving around the globe. Okay. Well, guys, we're going to take a quick break from our show to bring you this message from our advertising agency. Podcast One. They want you to take a survey to give them some feedback about how they're doing and your podcast listening habits. Yeah, your response, guys, will help us make the show the very best that it can be. And we'd like to thank Bob, especially today, for making the show so wonderful. (laughs) Thank you, Bob. Thanks, Bob. Anytime. It's a very quick survey. It takes just a couple minutes of your time, and you you guys will have helped us out, so we really appreciate that. Take the survey at podcastone.com. That's podcastone.com. All right, thanks, guys. Let's get back to our show. You're going to tell us about a new study supporting this notion of a sixth extinction. Yeah, this was interesting. Uh, There's been some talk about this for years, and I have read about it on and off for a while, but the latest evidence seems to show that with a fair degree of confidence that we are currently undergoing Earth's sixth mass extinction event. Um, If you do a search, uh, just run to Google and do a search on uh, massive extinction events, typically you'll find the five big ones that that have been identified. There could be more, but there's been five big ones that have been identified uh, and they are the uh, Ordovician Silurian, the Late Devonian, the Permian, Triassic Jurassic, and then the Cretaceous Tertiary. Uh, and we may be in a sixth one that some people are calling the Holocene extinction. 
Now, the studies that have been done up until now, they've generally been criticized to saying that, well, you're exaggerating the extent of the, of, of the, uh, the event. It's not as bad as you're saying. But now a new paper has been released. Uh, it's called Accelerated Modern Human-Induced Species Losses Entering the Sixth Mass Extinction. From that study, it seems like the, the fears are justified and we may actually be in one. Now, the key thing that I, that I, as far as I could tell is when you're determining this is you got to come up with a baseline, which is, uh, which is what they did. This is a conservative estimate about the, the amount of extinctions that occur when there's no mass extinctions happening. So in between the mass extinctions, you've got this baseline, you know, the business as usual extinctions. Now that's very important because anything that's Anywhere near that figure, of course, you can't consider that a mass extinction. They kind of describe this as 2E MSY, which means this baseline number is two extinctions for 10,000 vertebrates um, or 10,000 vertebrate species every 100 years. So that's the baseline. You're not really going to get too much lower or even too much higher than that uh, when you're in between any type of real extinction. That number, I mean, they just didn't pull that out of their butts. They they gave this some good some good thought. And they, they say that regarding this baseline number, they say that it was empirically determined using the exceptionally good fossil records of mammals, combining ex- extinction counts from paleontological databases and published literature on the fossil, subfossil, and historical records. So they gave that some thought because this was key. And the big thing to note about that number is that it's about twice as big as previous estimates. And you would think, all right, if it's twice as big as we as we thought, then that would mean that any you know any mass extinction would have even a less chance of actually being classified as mass extinction because the baseline is is so high. And it's good that it's so high because, uh, as they say, this is a stringent test for assessing whether current modern extinction rates indicate that a mass extinction event is underway. So uh, for their conclusion, they kind of came up with the idea after going through all this is that the vertebrate loss uh, from the past 100 years is 15 to 114 times greater than this new baseline. So clearly, We've in the past century, at least, and that that goes back a lot farther. But for the past century, we are far above uh, even a conservative baseline. So something serious is happening. So here's an interesting angle about that. They said that uh, that means that the extinction, the extinctions that we've experienced the past century, would normally take 800 to 10,000 years to happen if we were in a baseline period. So it's just another way to look at that data. So uh, Paul Ehrlich is the uh, Bing Professor of Population Studies, Biology Senior Fellow at the Stanford Woods Institute for the Environment. He said that our paper is the icing on the cake. It shows without any significant doubt that we are now entering the sixth great mass extinction event. So he's um, pretty damn sure about this. Granted, he's a co-author, but he makes a compelling argument. It's it's even worse than it may, it may even sound because many species – will die out, but a lot of them will not, they won't completely die out, but still their populations are going to be completely decimated. And they, he says that it's They're going to be diminished by such a degree that these natural services that insects like, like honeybees uh, give us are, are not going to be really an option uh, for a hell of a lot longer. And that that's not trivial. I mean, honeybees contribute to a, to a lot of things, not, not just honey, but other types of animals can contribute to many different types of food, and even they have an impact on the climate. So having that go away uh, is really is not a good thing. And it's so bad that uh, he had a quote. He said that we are now moving into another one of these events that could easily, easily ruin the lives of everybody on the planet. 
Um, there is a little bit of hope. He says that uh, we can actually take steps to deal with this if we if we initiate a, like a major wildlife and habitat conservation. But he says the window of opportunity is rapidly closing. So unfortunately, uh, I'm not sure if we're going to really take this seriously and do what needs to be done to to minimize this. But uh, but it seems you know very clear, at least to these researchers, that this event, this the sixth mass extinction event, is happening right now. Yeah, I think it's even think? worse because they were conservative, very conservative. Yeah, yeah. not only that, it's uh, you have to consider what happens. There's a lot of species where they may not go extinct right now, but we're reducing their populations to unsustainable levels. And then, like even if humans disappeared from the planet tomorrow, you know, there's lots of species that are already now so vulnerable that that we've accelerated their extinction. Right. By hundreds or or thousands of years or whatever, so like over the next thousand years, a lot of species are now slated for extinction because we've we've reduced their populations to unsustainable levels. Yeah. So yeah, it's it, it's very disheartening, and it is um, even just looking at it from a purely selfish point of view. I kind of like having animals to share the planet with. Mm. Oh but yeah, of course. What's really scary is that it it reminds me of the uh, when you. That what's that thought experiment where you you're boiling a frog? If you put a frog in, in really hot water, it's going to say what the hell and jump out. But if you slowly increase the temperature, it's just going to stay in there and cook itself to death. I don't. I'm not even sure if that's actually true. But the point is, hmm. an extinction does not need an asteroid. It does not need a massive methane release. You know, it doesn't need something quick and dramatic. This is this is like a slow burn that's kind of like just barely on our radar now, and uh, that, that doesn't mean the effects can't be just is devastating. Uh, we also have to mention that Paul Ehrlich is uh, infamous as an alarmist. He wrote the book The Population Bomb in 1968, which made a lot of statements predicting ecological disaster of all sorts due to overpopulation. He predicted massive starving by the 1970s, rampant disease, and lots of other ecological disasters. So that doesn't necessarily mean that th this current analysis is not accurate. The data is the data, and we'll let, have to wait for the scientific community to peer review it and replicate it and see if it holds up. But yeah, we would be remiss if we didn't mention the fact that Paul Ehrlich, look him up, you'll see that he's a very controversial figure and definitely way towards the alarmist end of the spectrum when it comes to the effects of a growing human population on the ecology of the planet. All right, Jay, it is time for Who's That Noisy? Right, so last week... I played an interesting noisy. Anybody have any uh, ideas on what that was? <laughs> the hell is that? The hell, man. The question is, is that it, one like animal or thing, or is that multiple... Together? It was, more, it was together, yeah. There was a couple of them hanging was out. Was it okay. ecstasy or agony? Um, uh -huh. I would, I would, it sounds like a happy noise. Okay. Oh, that's good. I'll tell you something, guys. Max <laughs> Davidson from Sweden knows what, who's that noise he is this week. Really? Yes. Yes, he guessed it correctly. It's a rhino. What? Yes. A rhino? It's a baby rhino, right? No, it's a rhino. Rhinos, wow. make, oh, okay. rhinos make squeaky happy noises. And what's funny is there was a segment of the, uh, the video I was watching 
where the rhino's making those noises and it goes, ah, you know, like it just <laughs> comes out with like the super deep, ah. like, oh yeah, that's what a rhino's supposed to sound like. Wow. They're, they're, they were definitely smaller looking rhinos, Steve, but these weren't like fledglings, you know, they were, they were probably middle aged or, you know, young, but not, not the huge ones, but rhinos make that noise. Did you guys know that they, they're able to pretty much 3D print rhino horns that's genetically identical to real rhino horns? Good. Wow. I thought, Good. I thought awesome. that was an inspired idea. It was, you, you can, you can't really tell the difference. And, I thought that was just a fantastic idea. They could basically, they could drive the market down so, they could make it so cheap so that the incentive's not going to be there for for much longer to, you know, it's not going to be $30,000 or whatever for a rhino horn. They can get it down to such a level that the incentive won't be there anymore to murder. Yeah, they won't hunt them. Good idea. Do it for elephant tusks and do it for shark cartilage and all the other things that they kill for all the crazy reasons they kill them. So I have a noisy for this week, my friends. Oh, that's me rolling a D twenty. <laughs> Did you hear it? Yeah. yeah, I know it's it's just it's very short. I will give you a hint because I think this one is extraordinarily difficult. It's something recent. So, if you think if you think you know what that sound is, send me an email at wtn at theskepticsguy.org. God bless. Good luck. May Jesus wave his arms above you and make you guess correctly this week. Hey, we got a dumbest thing of the week this week. Hey. Kim Jong-un. You guys familiar with this character? Oh, oh my boy. God. Yep. Oh, so yeah. Good. Ridiculous. <laughs> but, uh, you know what's coming. <laughs> yep. yeah. So North Korea put out a piece of propaganda last week uh, saying uh-huh. that they have cured, mind you, cured AIDS and mm-hmm. MERS and Ebola mm-hmm. Ah. And, and maybe even cancer. And SARS. Oh. And SARS, yeah. Uh, wow. Oh, with there. An, That's with awesome. an amazing, with an amazing new herbal extract. <laughs> so, <laughs> the press herbal. release is a little vague on details, actually. So a lot of the, a lot of the, um, news outlets were reporting that Kim Jong Il was claiming that he cured AIDS and Ebola. And okay. Of course. I, uh, that's I actually think it's quite reasonable because he is at the top of this you know propaganda machine and these are all his you know the way that the way it works and the way it's always presented it's like all glory goes to Kim Jong Un right yep so whatever that's yep. a reasonable shorthand to say that I mean nobody thinks that he was actually in the lab you know doing the research but there's a picture of him wearing a white lab coat there Steve. is there is uh, but still <laughs> but anyway the company. Some company in North Korea, Pujang Pharmaceutic Company, produced Kumdang 2, which is made from – it's basically ginseng, <laughs> which they which they grow in soil that has rare earth elements in it. And the rare earths get taken uh-huh. up by the ginseng and uh-huh. turn it into a super medicine that cures AIDS and Ebola. Cool. Rare you know how ginseng. it does this? Magic. By boosting your immune system. Oh, of course. Of course. That's, all you need, guys. That's all. Hey. That's all you need, guys. Little, yes. Yeah, give the immune system a little kick in the ass and it can whip <laughs> AIDS. No problem. Forget about the fact that the AIDS virus mutates and all that stuff. Forget about it. You just boost your immune system with a little ginseng. Good. Throw in some rare earths there. Oh, Steve, you're in your Western medicine. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now, unfortunately, yes, we laughed. Yes, it's ridiculous. Yes, it's the dumbest thing of the week. But there are companies in America that are putting out crap, which also claim all sorts of stuff. Then, of course, the magic oh, sure. bullet is the immune system. So what are we really talking about here? Oh, really, this is no different than a million types of snake oil that are on sale all over the country. You're right. It really isn't any different, Evan. Uh, well, it, you know, it's at the far end of the spectrum. I mean, we're talking Ebola. And and AIDS. I mean, that's the Bob. Type type extravagant. Type in herbal AIDS cure. Let's do it right now. Yeah, Google. A little exercise. I'm gonna type in herbal AIDS Hmm. cure. Let's see what happens. Uh, The top hit is top vein is scientifically tested herbal product for the treatment and cure of HIV AIDS. Cure. Yeah. There you go. Okay, well, that's great. Corrected. Top Vein International. There you go. First hit. And you, it does this without the need for toxic antiviral drugs. So what's the whole point, though, of putting out these press releases? Like, Yeah, it's just pro-North Korean propaganda. Again, not that other go- – I mean, you know, obviously other governments, corporations put out, you know, marketing for themselves. It's the same thing, you know, propaganda. But there's just – it's just – it's the magnitude. It's the, it's the silliness that it gets to and how transparent it is to at least these Western eyes, you know. We reported years ago about how when Ahmadinejad was in charge of Iran, uh, that he and his uh, ministers also put out a statement that they also cured AIDS and a bunch yeah. of other things with uh, with natural remedies. So actually, the North Koreans stole that, I think, directly not from e- the Iranians. Not even original propaganda. Yeah. Nope. <laughs> All right, we're going to do one email this week. This is a... Follow-up. So a couple of weeks ago, we had an impromptu discussion of the limitations of current software, and uh, I was wondering why there are certain um, aspects of even very expensive pieces of software that seem to be so frustrating. A few people wrote back saying that, but essentially explaining why software has limitations, which I get it. I understand that there's a reason. I didn't think it was magic. You know, obviously there's a reason that there's limitations. There's always going to be um, some practical limitations to to any industry like that. My point was more that uh, it's not an adequate explanation. But two people emailed and were actually mad at us for that discussion, and specifically at me since I was really leading the rant. You bastard. This one comes from Jace from Australia, just as an example. Uh, and he writes, uh, love the show, but I've got to email you about Steve's IT rant in the last few shows. I work in IT. I'm the first and second point of contact for all IT problems of every hospital in my state. And I've got to tell you, nothing worse than coming home to my favorite podcast with you guys ranting about IT. Look, I have fights every hour with medical staff. And let me tell you, Windows isn't the problem. The ribbon came out in, what, 2005, 10 years ago, and you're still complaining? How else can you make a menu with over 100 commands and submenus in a list? Show me any application that is better. Photoshop, CAD, PAX. 30% of our medical apps still only run in IE. Only these apps aren't made by us. The last estimate showed it would cost $20 cash to get it updated. Everyone in medical hates IT. Good luck getting $20 Uh, And he goes on a little bit farther. So... You know, I think Jace's taking this a little personally. Um, it wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't complaining about IT. I was complaining about the people who are developing the software. Uh, and I 100% stand behind my previous rant. Let me tell you why. First of all, so we did mention, mention Windows. You know, I understand that making a good user interface for a piece of software is, is complicated. I'm not saying it's easy. There are trade-offs. 
There are limitations. You can't anticipate every possible way somebody could misunderstand how to use your software. And it takes a lot of money and investment and time and resources to really tweak a user interface. I get all that. I don't expect every software to be tweaked. But Windows, I mean, but we're talking about one of the biggest pieces of software out there that literally has billions of dollars behind it. There's, I don't, I don't buy that excuse. For, for these major applications. The piece of software I was mostly complaining about uh, previously was the electronic medical record system at use at my hospital and many other locations. Again, this is a massive piece of software by a large company. And, I mean, I know that Yale spent millions of dollars on it. You say it would cost $20 million to fix the software? Then spend it. It's absolutely worth it. That, you know, that, think of how much money we're losing because of lost productivity because of the inefficiencies in this piece of software. The, um, my point is, uh, it, it, with this particular piece of software, in my opinion, it looks to me as if almost no resources were spent on optimizing the user interface because even the low-hanging fruit was left hanging on the tree. And there would it would be very easy, relatively to fix some of the worst problems in the uh, lack of usability for this piece of software. Jay, you recommended that book, uh, Don't Make Me Think, and I've been actually reading my way through it. And it's, you know, it's, it's, the author says this is all common sense and it's true, but it's interesting to go through systematically. He talks about a lot of things about websites and software and how little things like having buttons where you expect them to be and having things be self-explanatory. Uh, and getting rid of clutter off the screen, like really basic stuff that software develop, developers figured out 30 years ago. That's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. Well, I think part of the problem is it's you're building a car and the engine is sound and the transmission is sound, but the cabin where the seats are, you know, oh, the, the car will get you there. Who cares? Yeah. You know, you know, so they make it suck and the seats are uncomfortable and, you know, whatever. You know, it's it's you, you could still deliver the product without right. having the user interface be paid enough attention to to make it usable enough where people can get the job done relatively quickly without too much pain. And that's that's always the problem. Why is that always the the, the really big problem? Is the user interface? Well, partly that's what everybody sees. You know, because yeah. you're not seeing the code, you don't know how screwed up it is behind the scenes, and it is screwed up in a lot of cases. You know, it's just. From my, from where I sit, it's poor project planning. It's poor financial, uh, it's, it's poor management of the finances of the software. You know, I don't think you should build software if you can't afford to do a professional job with the front end and make it the usability not be, you know, at the very least, you don't want people to be freaking out about the, about it. And with this particular piece of software you're describing, Steve, everybody hates it. I, you know, I've gone to the doctor and literally had like nurses turn to me because like I, 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 my doctor uses one of these systems as well. And, and the nurses, you know, complain every time I go. Like it, it's a big problem. Yeah. And the other thing is, you know, I was, I've been on committees. I've looked at uh, like every type of EMR that's out there. I actually was responsible for installing the electronic medical record system in our, department 15 years ago. I spent a year tweaking the user interface for that EMR, uh, and it worked really well. 
because the company allowed us to program it any way we wanted to. We actually had total control over the user interface, you know, beyond the core functionality. As long as it could do it, as long as it could do what we needed it to do, uh, we could tweak the interface on a surface level. The problem with the current one, that so now then Yale went system-wide to one EMR, so we had to replace an actual EMR that I liked with this new one, and they won't let us tweak the user interface. I, I'm stuck with whatever they, they were giving us because they want it to be uniform uh, no matter who has it installed, which I think is crazy. Uh, and so we're stuck with this clunky interface that they will not let us fix. That's a problem. And and there's also the thing is the scale is so big that there's no accountability. I just can't find anyone who's accountable for anything when it when it comes to this. Everyone can always point the finger at somebody else. Some emailers noted that part of the explanation is that the people who are writing the software probably have a high tolerance for, you know, taking 10 clicks to get somewhere and memorizing submenus of submenus. And they, they get very intimate with the software, so they don't realize how unintuitive it is or how difficult it might be for somebody who isn't a software engineer, you know, to use that software. It's like, you know, if, if the car engine, the car's a good analogy, Jay. You have the engineers tweaking the engine and, you know, the, the chassis is, is not even like production level. It's just, you know, you're sitting on chairs. They bolted to the floors and whatever. It all works for them. They don't care about that. They care about the engine and the, how cool everything is, but they don't really, they're not thinking about like the, the, the little details that make the user experience better, you know, that make it more comfortable and the controls more intuitive and easier and within reach and whatever, you know, the little things. It's pretty simple, Steve. You're a user of the software. How many suggestions could you make to the guys that develop the interface to make it better? Do you have a ton? A hundred. All right. So that's a, that is a massive problem with the user interface. Yeah. It's a massive problem. And, and I'm not quite, I really don't understand, um, the point is that good interfaces exist. You can't argue that good inter- inter- – essentially, he's saying good interfaces don't exist You know, in a way. Like, what do you mean? Yes, they do. Companies that spend a lot of money and attention on interfaces develop excellent interfaces. Apple is known for excellent interfaces. Why? Yeah. Because they, they focus a, a ton of their time and energy on it. So I don't agree. I really, really wholeheartedly do not agree – with anybody that wrote in saying that, you know, giving excuses for this or that. It's just crappy programming and we can fix it. Let me also say on a related point that complaints about IT, you know, having to deal with users who don't know what they're doing, etc. Every profession has the exact same experience. Whenever you're dealing with the public, it's going to be frustrating. I deal with this every day. I deal with patients who you know don't have a, a high level of medical literacy, and you'd be amazed at the stuff they do. Talk to any professional. Talk to your plumber. You know about the ridiculous things that people put down their disposal. That's part of the job: is dealing with the general public who don't have a high level of understanding about your particular profession. That your job is dealing with that. And I again, I just don't think it's fun to talk about. Yes, but it shouldn't be a serious complaint. All right, let's move on. Actually, guys, it's time for science or fiction. It's time for science or fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one they think is the fake. 
You guys have swept me two weeks in a row. And it will happen again. Oh, wow. Oh, we'll see. We'll Careful. see. It'll Careful. probably happen again sometime. I don't know if that is a wild boast. You All right. The Night's Humility. What movie? Here we go. Ready for three, That's right, three regular news items. Thank you, Evan. Three regular news items. <laughs> Item number one. It's a good movie. Although fossil evidence of clear Neanderthals survive only to 35,000 years ago in Europe, recent genetic analysis of early Europeans suggests they were still interbreeding with Neanderthals as late as 25,000 years ago. Item number two, a new study finds that smartphones can interfere with modern pacemakers, causing them to temporarily stop functioning. And item number three, scientists have discovered a species of mistletoe that is the only plant or animal known lacking key genes that are involved in energy production. Bob, go first. All right, Neanderthals. That's a big gap. Uh, got evidence that, you got, I guess, what, fossil evidence that says, uh, they only survived to 35,000, but genetic evidence would, humans 25 that's yeah that's a that's a big gap but uh still i think that's i think that's possible i mean fossil evidence could easily have a big enough gap to account for that um i mean the populations could have been really tiny not not too much fossil evidence i guess uh and we got smartphones uh interfering with modern pacemakers wow that's just that's just the kind of thing that i think they would really consider do, uh testing well Smartphones are ubiquitous, and there's so many pacemakers out there. It's a little surprising that that, that would get through the uh, the QA testing cycle. And the third one, the mistletoe, it's the only plant or animal that's lacking key genes. Wow, that's a tough one right there because, I mean, you're, you're, that's a pretty fundamental aspect of any biology. It's energy production. You're missing some key shit. I'll throw my dime down on number two. The uh, the pacemaker one is fiction. Okay, Jay. The way I'm reading this, the key thing here is that you're saying Neanderthals were interbreeding with humans as late as 25,000 years ago. Okay, that's interesting. But So this one about the smartphones interfering with modern pacemakers, I completely believe that that is absolutely plausible. Uh, so this last one here, this, this scientist discovered a species of mistletoe that all right, so if it's lacking key genes involved in energy production, then how does it produce energy? Aha! All right, Bob? Isn't that the yes. conundrum here? That's, yeah, it sounds like a fatal flaw. But Well, all right, I'm going to pick the first one, the Neanderthal one, because I know Steve likes fossils and whatnot, and I bet you that he's like, oh, I'll tweak this on this one, so I'll just take that one. Okay, Evan? I think I'll have to go with Bob. I think the... Um... Cell phone and pacemakers one. I think that Uh-oh. one's going to turn out to be fiction. Okay. You all agree that scientists have discovered a species of mistletoe that is the only plant or animal known lacking key genes that are involved in energy production. You all think that one is science. Very interesting. Uh-oh. And that one is uh, science. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh. Good. Tell me. Uh, best. Yeah. Tell me about that one. I'm curious. Yeah. Well, uh, you tell me. How could that be? I think it has it, a parasite it's or something. It's a parasite. Some external. Yeah. Exactly. It's a parasite. Oh, there you go. Par- oh. Parasites, uh, because they live off of other creatures, they have a tendency to become more simple over evolutionary time. They lose functionality and including genes. Uh, so this specific species, Viscum scoroloidium, which is a type of a mistletoe, is a parasite. Uh, you know how like vines will crawl up other plants. 
This is a, this is a so-called aerial uh, parasite because it attaches to the stems of plants and gets its nutrients from there. But it was still surprising because this has never been dis- discovered before, even in even in parasites, that uh, it does not have the, these key respiratory genes for making energy in the mitochondria. They're actually mitochondrial genes that are missing. Uh, it has a very, much smaller simplified mitochondrial genome. The mitochondria are the organi- organelles that make energy. So they're saying, well, presumably it must be getting its energy through its parasitic lifestyle, but they're not sure exactly how it does that. Uh, and again, the surprising bit is that this would be the first plant or animal not to have these specific genes. Every other animal or plant tested has these genes. Very interesting. Wow. Okay. Did you know that mistletoe was a parasite? No. I did not. I do now. All right. Let's That's go to grow on. back to number one. Although fossil evidence of clear Neanderthals survived only to 35,000 years ago in Europe, recent genetic analysis of early Europeans suggest that they were still interbreeding with Neanderthals as late as 25,000 years ago. Jay, you think this one is the fiction. Bob and Evan, you think this one is science. And this one is. Yeah. Say it. The fiction. Ah! <laughs> Jay, you're wow. kicking, you are kicking ass recently, Jay. No, I'm not, Steve. This is the worst year I've ever had. Really? I thought you've had yes. a good All run. Right. I thought you've had a good run recently. No, no. I've, this is actually, I think, I wish someone would tell me the stats, but I think this is by far the worst year I've ever had so far. Is that right? Well, you've gotten yeah. the last three weeks, correct? Well, we all did, except yeah, Bob and Evan this week. Except for that, we all did. So, Bob, you read the article but didn't read deep enough. Is that right? No, I didn't. I didn't. Oh, okay. I didn't read this. So there, there is some recent uh, fossil evidence uh, with a – it's actually a 40,000-year-old jawbone from a European, uh, and it's clearly morphologically – well, I, sh- I guess I shouldn't say clearly. It is morphologically a modern human – but it's kind of a little in that in that gray zone, you know, where there are some more primitive features. And they analyzed the DNA and they found that it was up to 9% Neanderthal DNA. Whereas, you know, your modern Europeans walking around today have around 2% Neanderthal DNA. So what that means is that it must have had a very recent Neanderthal ancestor for 9% of its genome to still be yeah. essentially Neanderthal. Mm-hmm. Prior to 45,000 years ago, there were only Neanderthals in Europe. And after 35,000 35, years ago, there was only modern humans in Europe. So between 35 and 45,000 years ago, humans and Neanderthals overlapped in Europe. But we have very few specimens from this time period. But a few years ago, we discovered a jawbone from a human from 37 to 42,000 years ago, right in the sweet spot right in this period of overlap, and lo and behold, a lot of Neanderthal DNA. So clearly there was some modern human Neanderthal hanky-panky going on in Europe over that 10,000 years of overlap, which makes perfect sense. So, But that was interesting, and that's been all over the news today, so I thought maybe you had seen it but didn't read deep enough to look at the dates. Well, that happens, but not tonight. Okay. All right, all of this means that a new study finds that smartphones can interfere with modern pacemakers, causing them to temporarily stop functioning, is science. Uh, so this was a study uh, that was presented at a recent uh, cardiology conference and is printed in their program and I think is going to be published formally. 
uh, but the details are all online, and of course, we'll link to it. So what they did was they looked at smartphones during while they were ringing, while they were making a connection, and while somebody was talking on them, and they had them placed over the uh, the chest where the pacemaker would be, and while they were interrogating the pacemaker, and they found that some of the pacemakers actually got confused from the signals coming off the smartphone, especially during the ringing and the connection. It, it actually could cause it to pause. So it stops, you know, making the heart contract and in yeah. fact could, could cause a person to pass out when that happens. They performed 3,400 tests and out of those, uh, one out of 308 resulted in a pause. So it was 0.3%. So it's not likely it's it's uncommon, but it can happen. The scenario they say would be most dangerous is if somebody with a pacemaker were carrying their phone in their shirt pocket and then it rings, you know, and that could cause the pacemaker to, to pause. Essentially, there is already the recommendation that if you have a pacemaker, you should keep it a few feet away from any smartphones. But that was just based mainly on an abundance of caution and not hard data. So the study was basically trying to figure out, is that a reasonable recommendation? And the authors concluded, yeah, it is. And while it's uncommon, you know, 0.3%, still, you don't want that to ever happen, right? You don't ever want your pacemaker to turn off. But it's brief, right? It's it's not like, you know, it's yeah, temporarily, a few moments, yeah. Temporarily, but still, you know, missing a few heartbeats, eh, not a good thing, you know? Scary, scary. Yeah, but it could, it could cause someone to pass out, get hurt, and it could be more permanent. Who knows? Well, good job, Jay, soul winner Thank this you. week. I feel great. Wow. Evan, before we get to the quote, before we get yeah. to the quote, yep, yep, a yep, few yep. few reminders to our listeners. One is that uh, The Amazing Meeting is coming up. Go to theamazingmeeting.com uh, and register. It's not too late. It's in Las Vegas, July 16th and 19th. The SG will be there. We'll doing doing a live show we're doing our dinner with our auction it's going to be a ton of fun great speaker lineup check it out also just a quick update on the lawsuit uh, if you recall i'm being sued for an article i wrote for science-based medicine uh, the lawsuit is actually going well in terms of the merits of the case however even though i'm winning the case as it were it is a long, drawn-out, and expensive legal ordeal. So uh, we still could use the support of our listeners to try to get us over the finish line in terms of the legal cost of this. And we are pursuing every avenue we can to make this work out favorably. Of course, I'm not going to go into any details. I do expect that in the end, we will have some good news to report to you. In the meantime, we are still struggling with our legal expenses. Uh, you could go to the SGU homepage and you will see there the link for our legal defense fund or just go to the skepticsguide.org slash legal defense and you can make a contribution if you wish. Or you could become a member of the SGU. Members of the SGU, that's another way of supporting everything that we do. And if you become a premium member, which starts at $8 a month, this is $2 an episode. Evan, that's pretty inexpensive, don't you think? Um, quite affordable. Yeah, it's quite affordable. <laughs> you get access to our premium content. Uh, there's, I think, 54 pieces of premium content up there. I just put a new one up this weekend. We actually have a little bit of a backlog of, of content that we have to do post-production on. Hopefully, I'll be able to, to get caught up with that and get that out uh, quickly. But we do have a steady stream of premium content that, content that goes up there. Uh, so we really do appreciate 
everyone who supports the SGU and all of the things that we do uh, by becoming members. Take a look at our membership page. We have some fun levels there uh, where you could support at whatever level you feel comfortable. But we appreciate anything you do to help us keep the SGU machine going, spread skepticism throughout the world. Right, Jay? That's our goal. We've been doing it for 10 years, and we'd like you to join us. Join us. Assimilate <laughs> in full-on Evil Become. Dead style. Join us. <laughs> the SGU collective. Yeah, I was thinking more of a hive, yes. Yeah. Yeah, hey, become guys, our, become a drone. No. If any of you do go to TAM, please, um, you know, come up to our table and say hi to us. We we hang out at the table as much as we can to uh, to meet everybody, and we'd love to meet people and talk to you. So just don't hesitate. All right, Evan, take us home with a quote. All right, here it is: Fables should be taught as fables, myths as myths, and miracles as poetic fantasies. To teach superstitions as truth is a most terrible thing. The child mind accepts and believes them, and only through great pain and perhaps tragedy can he be in after years relieved of them. That quote is attributed to Hypatia. Awesome, Ev. A cool figure from history. Very, oh, yeah, very cool. I mean, she was a Greek mathematician, astronomer, philosopher, uh, just a brilliant, brilliant woman in the time of Alexandria in the Library of Alexandria. She was the librarian of Alexandria. Um, and They're brutally mur you know, murdered by an ignorant mob. Yeah, uh, it's a tragic, tragic ending, unfortunately. However, did you know, <laughs> in doing a little more research on this quote, it is quite possible and perhaps truthful that this quote was uh, incorrectly attributed to Hypatia. Uh, the statements appear to have been written or published for the first time in a book which was uh, came out in 1908 by a gentleman named Albert Hubbard who uh, had a fascination frankly with Hypatia and wrote a lot about Hypatia but also had a tendency to well um, how should we say embellish uh, make certain things up uh, he made up uh, for example some such details as her height her weight and perhaps some other quotes that she didn't say but uh, in any case, it's a really good quote, I think. And Whoever uh, said perhaps it, it was quote, Hypatia's. Yeah. It wasn't, but attributed to Hypatia. Perhaps it was Albert Hubbard. In any case, good quote. Thank you, Evan. Yep. And thank you for joining me this week, guys. Sure, Steve. You got it. Thank you, Doc. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.